So we are still here in Matthew chapter 8. We've come to the conclusion of the chapter. And uh, I hope in our study of chapter 8 that uh, you've been blessed as I have, as we have said, we've come out of the Sermon on the Mount, and now chapter 8 is really um, the Sermon on the Move. So as we've come now to the end of the chapter, I wonder if you've noticed um, a somewhat an acceleration that's happening in Matthew chapter 8, a uh, crescendoing effect, if you will. We see it begins with Jesus healing a single, solitary uh, leper, and it, then it moves on to a uh, uh, the story of the centurion and the, his, his servant, and Jesus heals this Gentile servant, and then it goes on into uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then we see the crowds are, are coming and forming, and he's healing more and more people, and we heard about the cost of following Jesus, about how there's a, a, a weightiness, a gravity to that, and now as we come to the end, we see there's a storm, and this is not just any storm, we will find out, but a, a storm that he calms in the sea, and then ultimately he um, heals and exercises these demons from these men. I hope you can appreciate and see the acceleration, the crescendoing that's happening here in Matthew chapter 8. And in the reading that Silas was so kind to read for us, we see in our passage today that there are two, essentially two miracle stories. And if we're looking for commonalities between these two stories, I think you'd agree that in each one we see Jesus controlling chaos. And if we stop there, that might be all that we see, but also... What we also see is his defeat of evil. If you go all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you see the, essentially the prophecy that's uttered there all the way back in Genesis. And what is that? That ultimately that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. And in these two stories here now in Matthew chapter 8, what are we witnessing? We're witnessing the beginnings of the crushing of the serpent's head, if you will. So there's a Latin phrase that describes this theological idea, and that is Christus Victor. Christus Victor. What is that? Essentially, it's talking about Christ's victory over the forces of evil in this world. And I think it's good for us to meditate on this idea sometimes because I think at times, I think we can get lost in the, in the sorrow of the cross and neglect or minimize the victory of Christ upon the cross. 
So as we come to the passage, Matthew 8, 23 to 34, we see it records these two miracle stories. Jesus calms the sea, and Jesus controls uh, the demons. You, can, you could say that Jesus is calming the storm of the sea, and he's also calming the storm of the soul. But also, if, you take, if we take a moment to dig a, a bit deeper, I think we'll see that what we actually see in these two stories are actually two exorcisms. And you'll say, well, I, I know I only see one, right? The second story where these, these demon-possessed men come upon Jesus. Right? The obvious exorcism, the first one, is the, this whole deal with the pigs, right? But the other one is really Jesus' rebuke of the storm. And there are some reasons we can view this in that way. I want to share them with you. First, I think it's important to note that these two stories are placed next to each other in Matthew's gospel in Mark's gospel, and also in Luke's gospel. These two stories are placed right next to each other. And when we see that, it's sort of the gospel's way of telling us what? Read these together. Look at these together. And the question is why, right? Here's the second reason. If we look at the language that is used surrounding the storm. The word Matthew uses for storm in the original Greek is seismos, seismos. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but the literal definition for that word seismos is earthquake, earthquake. The only other time that specific word in the original language is used in Matthew is later on in Matthew 27 and 28 when um, the context is the end times. So in the usage of this word, the idea, the picture we should get about, about this storm is that there is something supernatural about this storm. Because remember, there are experienced fishermen on this boat. No doubt, they've, it's not their first rodeo out on the sea. They've seen a storm or, or two. But these experienced fishermen, how do they react? They are scared to death. Scared to death. So that's the idea. It's almost as though the enemy is attacking in this situation, that the enemy himself holding the sea and sort of attempting to shake it up. There's another reason in the language you can, you can have this idea, and that's the word that Jesus used when he commanded the sea. What, what do we see that it says that he does? He does what? He rebukes then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. So this is, in the original language, this word is epitomeo. And it's used in other exorcism accounts. 
like in Mark 1.25 when Jesus rebuked the demon-possessed man and the unclean spirit came out of him. So you put this together, right? We have this fact that these two stories, they're, they're set right next to each other. And then if we look at the language, we see that the words that are used by Matthew seem to tell us that there is something sort of supernatural going on in this storm. And the third sort of idea that this stilling of the storm is really kind of like the exorcism story, it has to do, it's kind of more of a cultural thing, but this is how the Jewish people perceived the sea. The Jewish people were not exactly seafaring people. If you look at the other nations around them, you had the Phoenicians to the north of them, you have the Egyptians to the south of them. Those cultures, they got out on the sea. They, they traded along the Mediterranean. You know, it was, part of their culture. it was part of their culture. The Jewish people, not so much. If you look into the Jewish writings, specifically the Bible, when the sea is presented, it's presented as something wild, chaotic, threatening. This is why you don't find many stories about the sea in the Old Testament. And the ones that you do find, the ones that you do find, there's always sort of a dark connotation to them. Think of when Israel first comes to the Red Sea. That sea initially is extremely unwelcoming to them. Same when you think about the story of Jonah. The sea would have swallowed up Jonah if that fish didn't do it first. However, if you notice in both of those stories, God provides. God provides in both of those circumstances. What does he do? He controls the sea to save his people. But we have to know that the sea is the thing that needs controlling, right? It's that there's a, there's a, there's a battle that he's battling against. And this first story is an exorcism of the sea. The second is, is one of the demons, right, where we see mentioned in verse 28. We see this, the second story, the second exorcism, is when Jesus' account, Jesus' disciples encounter this the moment they step off the boat and they wind up on the other side. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, this is all nice, but what does ancient exorcism 2,000 years ago have to do with me? Right? It's a valid question. What's the main lesson we're supposed to take from this? I think we've got some options. Are we supposed to take from this the realization that there is a spiritual reality 
that we are sometimes not keen to be aware of? Are we supposed to take from this the idea that Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Yes, that is a lesson for us. It's not the main lesson. We have some options. Does this, are we supposed to take from this that, that this is, has something to do with discipleship? If you, if you paid attention uh, in the story, we see that Jesus is ultimately unwelcomed by those who are, feel threatened by, by Jesus' religious authority. Jesus is unwelcomed by those who have a certain religious or economic security and, and they're, feeling, they're feeling threatened. So is the lesson that, that as we bring the gospel into the world that we're going to expect we should expect hostility or some kind of persecution or some kind of rejection? Yeah, that, that's a lesson. But it's not, the main, it's not the main issue. It's not the main lesson. All right, what else do we have? Well, we have the story about the pigs. Is the lesson don't be like the townspeople? What did the townspeople do? They cared more about the fate of their, their pigs than what? The, the men who were essentially healed and rescued. Is that the lesson? Yeah, there's, there's a real lesson in that. We should value people over pigs and any other possession that you might have. We should value people over any prized possession or thing that you have. That, that is a lesson. It's a good lesson. All these lessons that we've just talked about are good lessons, but they all focus on the wrong character in the story. This is not a story about the townspeople. This is not a story about the disciples. This is not a story about the pigs or the demons or even the demon-possessed men that are rescued. What is this story about? This story is about Jesus. He is the central character on which we are to center ourselves upon. This story is about the identity of Jesus. Look at verse 27. After Jesus rose and rebuked the wind and the waves, the men on the boat, what, marveled. And what did they say? What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What are they, what are they asking? What is the, what are the, what is the question? Who is this? Who is this? When you go later on in the story and you go to Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are going to be on a boat again. That's the next time they are on a boat. 
And this is the time when they see Jesus, what? Walking upon the water. And at that point, they actually answer their own question. Because what do they say there? Truly, you are the Son of God. Peter, later on in the story, in chapter 16, Jesus asks a question, who do you say that I am? And what is, what is Peter's reply? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So later on in the story, they, they answer this question. Another time, this question is answered by Jesus himself. When is that? When Jesus is on trial, what does the high priest ask? Tell us if you are what? The Son of of God. What does Jesus say? Basically, he says, it is as you have said. The last time Jesus' identity is straightforwardly revealed in the Gospel of Matthew is ironically from the lips of a centurion at the cross. After he, this centurion, this Gentile, Witnesses Jesus' suffering and death, a centurion and those with him in, in Matthew 27, 50, 54, it says they were filled with awe and said, truly this was who? The Son of God. So the disciples ask a question and we see later on in the story, this question sort of gets answered. But before, and this is fascinating, before all of those confessions that happen later in the story about who Jesus is, ironically, it's the demons who first announce to the disciples who Jesus is. The men, while they're on the boat, they're, they're doubting who Jesus, they're trying to figure out what kind of man this is. And then later on in the story, the demons tell them. In eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, what did the demons cry out? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The, the demons have an understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. But if you look in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says that they know this, but they shudder. And we see that. What do they say in the second part of 829? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Right? So they know Jesus as the Son of God, but in the presence of Jesus, they, they cower, they shudder. Why? They have a type of belief, the demons. But their belief is that of recognition, but it is not that of acceptance. And that's why they fully understand the consequence of rejecting God. It's not a little thing to confess and say that Jesus is the Son of God. But it is not just a matter of intellectual understanding. It is a matter of allegiance. Allegiance. 
If I acknowledge that he is the son of God in my head, that information has got to be traveling information. Where does that have to travel to? That has to travel to my heart and travel to my hands and to my feet. I need to love him, serve him, walk in his ways, count the cost and follow him, as we saw uh, earlier on in Matthew chapter 8. So the disciples see these two sort of exorcisms here in chapter 8, and, and their eventual admission, eventually they admit what? Jesus is the Son of God, and ultimately it meant what? For the disciples, their allegiance to him, and their commitment to Christ all the way unto even death. So in this passage, the demons say, the demons say Jesus is the Son of God, but the disciples are seeing it. They're seeing it. And I want us to see it as well. I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see that in these verses, 23 to 34, that Jesus is the Son of God because, why? Because He acts as only God can act. He rules over creation. He judges evil. And He saves His people. So first, Jesus rules over creation. Uh, I couldn't help but growing up reading the story of Jesus calming the storm and, and, and laughing when they say Jesus is just sleeping, sleeping on the boat. I guess you read that and some would read that and say that Jesus sleeping shows us his humanity. Some would say that. Right? He's a real man. He got tired. So he fell asleep, just like real human beings fall asleep. And I think Jesus is truly and fully human. And while I think in some ways that the first story, this first exorcism shows his humanity, right? In that he sleeps. And his, his deity, why? Because he commands the wind and the sea. But throughout this passage, it's really Jesus' deity that is on full display. The fact that he is God. Even the sleeping, even the sleeping, think about it for a moment. His sleep, it's not indicating a powerlessness. It's actually indicating this fullness that of, of absolute rule. Think about it. The idea is that someone who has everything under control could actually do what? He could sleep. He could sleep in the storm. But whatever we, we do with the, the Jesus sleeping, right? That's kind of, um, you know, whatever we do with that. The rest of the, for the rest of the passage, Jesus is awake and he is up and he is doing things. And it is in, in our face. What, what, what should be in our face is Jesus' divine power. 
if we come back to the sea for a moment, in the Bible, um, it talks about God controlling the sea. You'll see it in the Psalm, Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, Lord, you rule what? The raging sea. When, the, when its waves rise, you still them. Or if you go into Job chapter 38, 8 to 11, we see God speaking about the, the limits, the boundaries that he puts on the sea. Like, you, you'll come this far and you'll, you'll come no farther. And your proud waves, you know, are going to, as proud as you are waves, this is, you know, where you're going to be. Notice, notice in the text does Jesus pray to God to stop the storm? No. He addresses the storm directly. Jesus says to the waves, you know, like, imagine like, I don't have a dog, but I imagine if you had a dog, you say, play dead, and you can teach them, and then they what? Play dead. Jesus says, play dead to the waves. And the waves do just that, almost as if they recognize the voice of the Creator. They recognize the Creator's voice. It's almost as though all things hold together by the power of His Word, Colossians tells us. Calming a storm. The disciples are watching it. Stilling a storm. Have you ever seen anyone do that? That is power. That's authority. That's only something God could do. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The God of creation. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God and He judges evil. Only God can rule over creation. And Jesus as the Son of God, He does just that. But also, also, as only God can do, he judges. He judges. He judges evil. The demons know this. And they fear this. What do they say in 829? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What is it that they know? They know that Jesus is the appointed judge who will judge at the appointed time. One day he will come to judge the living and the dead. And it, it really, this, this judicial role of Jesus as judge, this, this really confirms that the fullest meaning of son of God. It really does. But I think, I think so they ask a question to Jesus, right? They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? I, think, I kind of think Jesus' answer to that question is Yes. Right? It might look like an act of mercy when, what, what happens, but really it's an act of judgment. Right? They, what do they ask? They ask, send us into the pigs. And Jesus allows it. 
But what happens? The pigs don't just continue going about their business doing what pigs do. They stampede off the cliff and into the sea. Into the sea. The same sea that almost swallowed up Jesus and his disciples. The sea. But unlike the disciples, these demons go into the sea and disappear into the depths. So this drowning in the sea, it appears to be like a present judgment on them. Jesus, and, I, and I, it stands out to me, Jesus, one word, right? If you, if you have the red letter Bible and you look in that section on that second story, there is one red word that stands out. What is that word? Go. With one, with one little word, the demons, they are judged by God's Son. He's the Son of God. He rules over creation. He's the Son of God. He judges evil. Jesus is the Son of God, and He saves His people. He saves His people. Think back through chapter 8. What have we seen? Does the Lord save? Our Lord saves the leper. He saves the slave. He saves the woman and many others from their illnesses. He saves the disciples from what? From drowning. He saves the demon-possessed men from their demons. The saving, you see it. So he's showing himself to be who? The Son of God, the Savior. But there's actually more to all of these smaller salvations in Matthew chapter 8. There is more to Jesus' mission than these small salvations in, in Matthew chapter 8. Because we are hurtling towards Matthew chapter 27. Because we know there is also the cross. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, learned that she was going to bear a son, the angel Gabriel announced to her the nature of her son's mission. And what was that? And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. So that salvation from sin happens not when Jesus stretches out his arms to still the sea but when he stretches out his arms to die upon the cross for you and for me the title son of god the title son of god is used of jesus nine times in matthew's gospel and i think through 
everything we've talked about in Matthew chapter 8, I've mentioned all of them except one. The one other time that Son of God is used in Matthew's gospel is when he is on the cross and those who are passing him by mock him and say what? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Think back to chapter 4 when the devil is tempting Jesus. Just like that, those who are passing by, what do they think? They think that if Jesus is the Son of God, he will come down off the cross. That he will manifest his identity through worldly power. But as we come to close this morning, we see, what do we, what do we know? What do we know? That on the contrary, since he is the Son of God, because he is the Son of God, he will stay on that cross because on that cross he will save his people from their sins. That's a beautiful, and that is the, the beauty of the Christian faith. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that is what is happening upon the cross. Really, we see that the storm is an exorcism, and the, the, the story with the two men that are demon-possessed is an exorcism. But upon the cross, this is really the ultimate exorcism, the chaos of creation, the powers of evil, the sins of you and me have been what? Rebuked and exercised upon the cross. Christus' victor, Christ's victorious victory over evil, the evils of sickness, sin, death, and hell. What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? This is the Son of God who rules creation, who judges evil and saves his people. And because of that, the one to whom all allegiance, all allegiance and all adoration is due. As believers, we look toward that great day that is coming. We look toward that with, with great anticipation because the authority of Jesus will be fully, finally asserted. His kingdom will come and His will will be done 
on a new earth as it is in heaven. And all of that is possible. All of that is possible. All of that is guaranteed because of what? What Jesus has done upon the cross. As you gaze upon the cross this morning, I hope that you will see that His victory is our great victory. As you gaze upon the one who was upon the cross in your place, on your behalf, I hope you will see that His victory is our great victory. This is our great hope. And we thank God for it. Let us praise our Lord together.